This is an RNZ podcast. Time now to introduce Colin Peacock with Midweek Media Watch. Uh, Colin, last week on the program we spoke uh, to Hayden about the problems the media have reporting the Gaza-Israel situation because everything that's being said and reported is contested and criticised. I guess nothing has changed much. It's still the case? Yes, yes, it certainly is. And I also took a look at that on the Media Watch program last Sunday as well because we had the Al-Ali hospital catastrophe sort of brought that to a head. Um, In fact, I spoke to uh, the BBC's Deputy News Chief, Jonathan Munro, about this and, uh, you know, how... As we know, you know, Israel blamed Islamic Jihad for a misfiring rocket causing that catastrophe. Gaza officials blamed Israeli airstrikes and so on. And of course, as we've heard, in fact, just today, Checkpoint um, reported that uh, the coach of the New Zealand Breakers, Modi Maywa, uh, had been in Australia saying he was critical. He has a background in Israel, spent time doing military service there, very critical of what the media had to say. So lots and lots of criticism. But I was listening to last week to the the BBC's weekly media show, and this is before the um, Al-Ali hospital disaster, and mm. uh, Sekunda Kamani of their Channel 4 uh, broadcaster, uh, he reported to them in the form of little voice memos, that was kind of all he could do from mm. Gaza itself, saying, look, we're aware, we've got devices, when we go online, even here in Gaza, we can see people reacting so strongly to every single word, every phrase we use, and uh, they found it quite difficult to cope with. Um And then the BBC's media show revisited that in their most recent edition, so this is after uh, the hospital catastrophe, and uh, the host, Ros Atkins, assembled quite a panel to talk about this. One of them was the editor-in-chief of Reuters, Alessandra Galloni, and also Richard Burgess, who's the director of news content at the BBC. And he put to them some pretty harsh questions about um, the use some of their own output had been put to. Richard, I'm going to read a BBC tweet here which says, Hundreds feared dead or injured in Israeli airstrike on hospital in Gaza, Palestinian officials say. And then, Alessandra, this is Reuters' copy from yesterday. Qatar's foreign ministry issued a statement on Tuesday strongly condemning an Israeli airstrike on a hospital in Gaza that killed hundreds of civilians. Um, Richard, do you have any reservations about how the BBC attributed those reports? I think we were really circumspect, in fact, throughout in all of our reporting to be really clear about what we knew and what we didn't know. Yeah, so that's the tricky business of attribution, those contested Mm. claims and counterclaims. So he's saying, look, the bedrock is you attribute them as long as it's clear to the listener or the reader that they're quoting uh, or summarising the, you know, the opinions, the claims that have been made by you know, participants in the story. But Alessandra um, Galoni of Reuters said, look, we will always give some sort of qualification you know, that those making the claim may have provided no evidence or just limited evidence as well, so going a bit further. But of course, very little of this uh, satisfies a lot of the critics who you know, demand in the absence of proof that, you know, and say media are in no position to be able to, uh, to, to report those claims or not. But it's not really an option uh, to not report the claims, is it, or, or, or the counterclaims? Uh, the, the same claims will be on social media. They'll mm. be circulating there. There'll be no qualification or context there. Yeah, in a lot of cases, that's true. I mean, not reporting it is is literally an option, but it would be extremely strange if um, you know stuff that's being reported and discussed all over the world wasn't being 
reported in any form by major news outlets, of course. But this was something that in that same edition of the BBC's media show, a very interesting opinion from Emily Bell. She's a former editor of the Guardian uh, media section in the UK, but now she works in the States at Columbia University, which is a leading uh, institution for uh, teaching and researching journalism. Uh, They have there that she's the director of the Tau Centre, which uh, studies the impact of um, digital technology and platforms on journalism. And uh, it's a long cut, this one, but I think she makes two interesting points, so worth having a listen to what she had to say. Actually saying nothing also creates a a vacuum of uncertainty around things. So it's incredibly difficult to get right. Uh, I think that possibly things like alerts, when you you do push alerts on news, organisations need to pay as much attention to those as they do to the headlines that they're putting on longer pieces or they're putting out on bulletins. And I think sometimes that's really where the incautious stuff creeps in at the edges. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And it can just be blown up on centre stage very, very easily. Uh, so I think it's there's enormous pressure on newsrooms now to get every single bit of what they are saying right from every single correspondent on every single platform. And that's a really difficult task at the best of the times. In the middle of a war, it's, it's all but impossible. Mm, so, yeah, I think that's an interesting point. She also went on to say, look, allied to this, you know, we've seen over the past 10 years, say from the, the US election 2016, even before that, people whose uh, professional occupation is undermining mm-hmm. the press, the main, mainstream media reports of things, which, which you know, amplify the difficulties of reporting it. But what she said was very interesting. Every platform, every format of these reports now from the sort of micro blogging form and the, the push alerts where you've got very few words to work with, all of that now being micro scrutinized and criticized, really difficult. And when you have things like Twitter, the platform Elon Musk in charge now, stripping out the little um, bits of context, the headings mm. uh, and headlines on articles. So you often see the image in a small description. That makes it even harder. And yeah, news organisations, editors are getting it in the neck for pretty much every form of words that they put out that's that's being recirculated and not always mm. with the, you know, the best intentions of reproducing them accurately. A really tough environment. Eh? Mm. Another complication, of course, is that Israel controls the access from its border with Gaza, and even if media do get in, Hamas is in control there. Yeah, and and Hamas has been designated a terrorist organisation in a lot of Europe and the US elsewhere, so that, that makes it doubly difficult for, for journalists. And on that same edition of the media show, the BBC's programme, they spoke to a foreign correspondent who's who's done this in the past. Um, Isabel Jung is her name. And she made a film that you can see on YouTube if you want to look it up. It was for the online outlet vice.com. So for that, she spent time with the Israeli Defense Force on the Israel side and then uh, with Hamas in, in Gaza. This is a couple of years ago. And that involved spending a lot of time trying to build relationships with them both. And it was one of those things that's like a, a producer, director, sort of thing, one one person band, one production, so she'd be quite nimble, but very much a personal perspective. Uh, but Ros Atkins, the BBC's media show host, asked her, look, after October the 8th and the you know the, those horrific attacks out of Gaza, those surprise attacks, those killings, the hostage taking, would you, could you actually, uh, you know, repeat that project and, and you know, effectively liaise work alongside and with Hamas now to make the same sort of film? The conversation would be whether we'd be furthering the conversation and our understanding of what's happening right now and if there'd be real 
journalistic value in doing so. Obviously, you know, I have absolutely no interest in platforming this militant group, but I do want to understand how this happened, how it can end, and to hold the right people accountable, which I do think is part of our job. Yeah, so there I think Isabel Jung is basically saying, yes, she would, even under these circumstances. But, you know, when she says she has no interest in platforming this group and she wants to, I mean, unless she could really challenge uh, them and demonstrate mm. that she was doing so, I think there'd be a, a lot of people that would say, well, you're you're immediately compromised if if you're going to work alongside and, and you know, with, with the permission of, uh, effectively, you know, almost embedded with a, a group like that in the midst of a conflict like this one. So I think very few yeah. people who were, you know, alarmed by what Hamas had, has done so far would, would agree that that was not, you know, platforming that group. So it's yeah, extremely difficult. Mm. Now, on Media Watch last weekend, uh, you looked at the tension between the political reporters and the Prime Minister over the coalition negotiation process, uh, the incoming Prime Minister, that that seems to have gone a bit quiet now. Yeah, it does a bit. In fact, some political journalists saying, oh, it's nice to actually have a, have a bit of a low-intensity uh, <laughs> political environment. I guess that's because uh, everyone's waiting for those special votes now. and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, but of course, as we know, and, and the, the Prime Minister-elect is still being asked every day, are you chatting to Winston Peters and in what form uh, and so on. But um, News Hub's Lloyd Burr, uh, even in the midst of this lull, if we can call it that, uh, had a bit of righteous anger going on mm-hmm. yesterday. So he says Christopher Luxon wants all these coalition negotiations to take place in Auckland, which is something the, the political journalist had flagged as a possibility straight after election night. But Lloyd said, look, this is essentially, in his words, to control the coverage of the coalition talks in a city without a political press mm-hmm. gallery. Um, now, Auckland is not a city without reporters, uh, you know, capable of understanding politics and, and uh, you know, tracking down politicians and doing a similar sort of job, I, I would say. Uh, but in another sense, if you're the Prime Minister-elect, do you need the press gallery when you can, um, you can also go on uh, the rock and announce <laughs> policy there? So what did he reveal? Yeah, this is on, on last Thursday, actually. <laughs> he, he went on the morning rumble with, uh, yeah. uh, let's see, Bryce, Mulls, Rog yeah, and Mel. Yeah. Yes. And um, Bryce Casey has been campaigning on mental health and suicide awareness. Uh, and I think he's a big supporter of uh, Mike King's mental health charity, I Am Hope. So uh, he pinned Christopher Luxon down while I had him in the studio on his support for the charity um, like this. You promised mm. before yep. you got into power, Gumboot Friday would change. Money's going there, my friend. Money's going? Yep. How much? Uh, what we committed to at the time, which I think we're going to double the amount of funding that they've you'd, got. I think you'd see yep, five, five million. Yep, no problem. Hmm. So that was, what, a spur of the moment thing, do you think? Or was it really a, a commitment that he, uh, that was being made by Christopher Luxon? Yeah, well, as Bryce said there, you made, you made a promise. I wasn't yeah. quite sure what that was, but it did sound like, you know, Millions for this charity? Yeah, no problem. It it does sound a bit off the cuff, didn't it? (laughs) It Um, But I look back, and as long ago as April, in fact, Christopher Luxon had announced that the National Party, uh, you know, would would be their policy to back the the I Am Hope charity. And it's part of his uh, position, if you like, of, as he puts it, getting the money out of Wellington. Mm. But on that interview, it's interesting, something uh, some other journalists have seized on here. Christopher Luxon also said... Uh, the government has spent $1.9 billion for mental health. It didn't get out of Wellington, I suspect, and deliver any outcomes. So we've got to power those up. These, these are his words. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Get the money out. Send it to those guys. Get the results. Keep them moving. So among journalists questioning this was the Herald's Alex Spence, who went on social media and says, look, 
he, he said that that was actually false. He said you cannot argue Labour didn't do, or sorry, you can argue that Labour didn't do enough on mental health or do mm. the right things. But to say that um, the $1.9 billion commitment has achieved no outcomes yet or delivered less counselling than um, Gumboot Friday or other initiatives or I Am Hope, he said, was just false. And another interesting response prompted by that was from uh, Oliver Lewis, a journalist at um, the subscriber service Business Desk. Now, he's done an in-depth reporting series, really, on the spending of public money, um, which has been quite interesting to read over the recent months. And he pointed out, uh, I think, a good point. He said, look, there are pretty detailed procurement practices Uh, to go through with this sort of commitment uh, can short-circuit that. You know, you can call it paperwork and red tape Mm. if you like, but to avoid wasted money and the sort of stuff um, Christopher Luxon was saying there, money being made available and being announced, you know, in the sums of more than a billion dollars, but it's got to work. Um, And Oliver Lewis, these are his words, saying, Mike King is very good at getting money from politicians who often favour populism over good governance. Now, Mm. I don't know if that's fair or not, but I think that point about the procurement um, is a good one. And we've seen it also with, you know, ginger groups on, um, you know, f- uh, funding of expensive medicines for um, cancer and rare conditions mm. and things. There are ginger groups uh, that work in this area um, and they can have an impact. But, you know, you may have other mental health um, organisations requiring funding that aren't of the profile of Mike King will get the same response from politicians. So, yeah, interesting point, I thought. Yeah, indeed. So now, will the press gallery journalists be a bit upset uh, with uh, the Prime Minister-elect chatting away and telling detail to The Rock, (laughs) but then keeping them at arm's length, the press gallery at arm's length, while he is forming this next government? I think they would have the noses out of joint a bit. (laughs) He's still doing those regular rounds, of course, talking to the the likes of Morning Report and the AM show, you know, as Prime Minister-elect. But in terms of, you know, as we heard in in the weekend and last week, you know, him saying, look, I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow on these uh, coalition negotiations. We've been elected. We need to get the votes counted and and talk about it. Uh, Yeah, they won't like that. But actually, I have to say that uh, the interview with... um, Christopher Luxon on The Rock wasn't entirely soft. At one point they put a ticking clock on him and gave him, I think, 15 seconds to answer a whole bunch of questions. Uh, Some of them had been sent in by listeners and they were about, you know, will you address, you know, the tax brackets and things like that. So it it wasn't all... um, soft stuff and mm. uh, laughing, yucking it up. Um, you know, and we've seen some of that since we, I think John Key uh, and um, even Jacinda Ardern, uh, they were quite happy to go on the music stations and um, do interviews that weren't exactly, you know, uh, Frost Nixon, <laughs> if you like, um, in nature. I think there was something John Key started up. Wasn't it on The Rock that I think he revealed that he weed in the shower or well, something and I think that encouraged them to get him on and ask him more wacky stuff that, that wasn't exactly uh, about um, core politics I remember him coming to the breeze and um, giving me a bottle of was a, a bottle of red wine with his label, his own label John Key Red Wine yeah. There, yeah. You didn't so, ask him for weed in the shower though I bet <laughs> No I did not. Don't get a bottle of wine for that the, It was the breeze, come on Yeah, But I can, <laughs> I can exclusively reveal though that Christopher Luxon, Prime Minister-elect, wasn't simply just waving through every uh, policy request from The Rock. Uh, in fact, uh, this, this mm. is a one here, um, a request for a bit of cost of living relief that he met with a pretty straight bat. Can you remove tax on woodies and long whites? <laughs> <laughs> the RTDs, you don't have to answer them. You can remain laughing. <laughs> and- 
Yeah, so I don't know how he does. That's Rog there with a fairly distinctive laugh there. There must be days when he doesn't feel funny, but he seems to manage to crack out that um, performance laugh yeah. uh, pretty much on call. Key oh, broadcast well. skill for The Rock, I'd say. Absolutely, for the right audience. Absolutely, <laughs> aimed at the audience. Um, so, now, moving along... Um, this uh, sex abuse ab- uh, survivor is called out TVNZ. Uh, this is a sex abuse abuse trial, and she's angry at TVNZ and wanting an apology. Yeah, this is quite a complicated story. Mm. I'll try and keep it relatively simple, but it's interesting from the point of view of journalism ethics and the law, journalism and the law and journalists' uh, obligations to their sources. So this is the story of Erin Layton. She was abused as a teenager by a man called Paul Bennett um, and also a woman who has name suppression, still can't be named. They were found guilty uh, last week. of uh, mm. Back in 2008, um, Erin was given ecstasy by them and decently assaulted. Now, suppression orders have prevented the media from reporting any details of the case until last week. So... Um, you might recall this guy, Paul Bennett, because uh, I did recall the name. He was the subject of a lot of stories back in 2020 because he was tried for fraud. And he had yeah quite a colourful backstory. He uh, eluded authorities for many years, escaped in a yacht, to I think a stolen yacht, to Australia oh, yes, by the yes. Bay of Islands. Yeah. And in the course of um, the reporting on him and, and trials, he all sorts of sort of Walter Mitty type stories about him. I think being a helicopter pilot for Russell Crowe, all sorts of other stuff mm. came up. Um, but he'd committed a series of frauds, uh, a lot of cons, um, people and their money and so on. But he wasn't tried for this um, sexual assault of Erin Layton until after those fraud prosecutions. And TVNZ um, Sunday program did a show about this um, because, you know, asking quite why he hadn't been called to account mm. for these other offences. So the former Sunday show producer, Chris Cook, told the Herald this week that he believed TVNZ had actually breached their promise to protect Erin, which is why she's angry, because she gave him the confidential interview back in 2015 for the making of that episode of The Sunday Show. Mm. Um, But that interview that was recorded, um, footage of it ended up being part of Paul Bennett's defence when he was in the Auckland District Court. So how did they get hold of that, if it was supposed to be off the record? Mm. Well, when interviewing Leighton... Chris Cook said she was in need of an assurance of confidentiality if she was going to be talking about the offences that it wouldn't um, be broadcast and, and would be kept private. So TVNZ effectively gave her that assurance and they, they said they actually went to court to withhold it when they got a court order to produce it under the Criminal Disclosure Act. So I'm guessing that was after TVNZ's programme and then the, mm. the Paul Bennett defence team must have said, well, let's see that interview. So in, in 2021, a judge ordered about two minutes worth to be disclosed um, by... TVNZ because lawyers acting for the defendant said there might be discrepancies between comments she'd made to the police back in 2008 at the time mm-hmm. of the offences and then this uh, TV interview years later that would be germane. So uh, Chris Cook, the producer, said he told TVNZ, you know, you must appeal this decision, um, but they didn't. And then Bennett and the female defendant who can't still be named did appeal and won access to even more so the full or, well I don't know if it's the full amount but around 25 mm. minutes apparently uh, were were provided um, and effectively you know Erin Layton could have been compelled to answer questions about what she told mm. um, TVNZ and yeah Chris Cook very upset by this because he thought there were grounds to appeal the district court decision and he said that he quit um, mm. because he was not happy uh, that they hadn't, hadn't followed through mm. So victims in sex crime trials, 
they have automatic name suppression. Erin Layton must have, did she waive that? Yes, yes, she did. So when she spoke to TVNZ back in 2015, it was because she was frustrated that the police knew where Bennett and his co-defendant, the woman, were in Australia but hadn't acted to have them extradited and charged. Um, and then in, in the wake of the broadcast, they, they were indeed uh, arrested. Um, so it, it was then that, uh, you know, in the court, they um, they realised well, that, that Leighton said, I only agreed to participate on receiving this commitment. Mm-hmm. And so TVNZ did have the option to file uh, either appeal further to the Supreme Court or file a cross appeal. Mm-hmm. But uh, just as a development on that, just uh, Tuesday this week, the Heralds, Katie Harris and David Fisher, reported that there was an internal TVNZ email they got hold of, which showed they decided not to appeal to the higher courts at TVNZ, so effectively just um, just just gave up because mm. the, they figured that they didn't have much option um, under the Criminal Evidence Act. Mm. Has TVNZ explained its decision? Well, they have said in response to the Herald's inquiries this week, um, because and partly prompted by the fact that Erin um, Layton told the Herald she just felt that when push come to shove, the broadcaster didn't have her back. So they said in response, they did oppose the release of the footage initially, and it was at substantial cost. They said we take our ethical responsibilities and our duty of care to interviewees seriously. Um, but they said in this instance, we were compelled by the courts, they say, to provide specific material for the purposes of a fair trial. Uh, So given the verdicts received at the District Court and Court of Appeal, we didn't appeal further. But yeah, clearly, as I mentioned, Chris Cook felt they could have and should have gone one step further. Mm. And what do you think? Did did TVNZ do do the wrong thing by not appealing? Well, it's it's difficult. I mean, in a sense, they did the right thing by taking up here in... uh, uh, Erin Layton's story, and that may have had an impact in, in actually, you know, getting yeah. prosecution and justice there. I don't know how much that impact that would have had, but uh, Massey University's journalism professor James Hollings uh, said that he thought that um, it was a reasonable response because the Sunday team's questions would have strayed into the actual allegations of offending, and an appeal to the Supreme Court, in his view, would not have been effective. Um, but, you know, my, I guess, you know, you'd be looking at it now possibly with hindsight thinking that TVNZ shouldn't give them those assurances if they couldn't back them up. Mm-hmm. But Ursula Chia, professor of law at Canterbury, you know, real expert in the series, says that the law hasn't been used to get this so-called, you know, off-the-record material, if we can call it like that, um, in this way before. So possibly a bit of a, a first up and, and a one-off. So other, other media will now be looking at this and thinking, you know, do we need to get legal opinions on things, on what is mm-hmm. the nature of off-the-record and what isn't if you've got a, a particularly de- determined defendant uh, in, a, in a court case. So uh, what's the takeaway for journalists here, or in fact anyone sharing a story with them about something that could end up in court? Well, in brief, uh, I guess it's that journalists don't quite have the same protection and media organisations that, say, legal advisors, medical professionals do, or indeed possibly even ministers of religion. Um, so, yeah, this is about the protection of journalist sources, um, mm-hmm. and maybe media would have to consider, look, is there a form where you can establish the bona fides of someone's story? Um, but if, you, if in, as in this case, where they're in Leighton, they said they never intended to broadcast it, and the source herself didn't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. It was just mm-hmm. establishing the truth. Maybe there's a way of doing this where there isn't a record that could be um, you know, requested and yet still complying with the law, because fair trial rights extremely important, um, and I guess the defendant would have a right to know if there was something that might cast out on uh, a police statement that was made as part of a prosecution. But if there's a way of establishing establishing this but not getting it in a so-called off-the-record form that ends up being very much on the record when push Mm. comes to shove would be something the media would have to look at.
It is uh, six minutes to 11. Colin Peacock here with Midweek Media Watch. And, well, of course, the big event on Sunday morning, Media Watch at 9am on (laughs) RNZ National. But there is another event that might be just a little bit bigger on Sunday morning, Colin. Yeah, bad luck for us. eh? We're right in the middle (laughs) of the World Cup final. Uh, Anyway, that that happens when they play rugby at night in the Northern Hemisphere of the All Blacks anyway. Uh, The 10pm replay will not clash with um, <laughs> on our <laughs> med- midweek media watch. I have to say that. But I, look, you've always got the option. You watch the rugby, just turn the sound up on the radio, turn the sound down on the telly between about 9.07 and 9.37. We're doing something a bit different. Hayden Donnell on a special expedition to Whanganui to find out the health and strength of local media there. So uh-huh. you have a listen to that, um, then turn the commentary back up at about 9.37. I reckon that, that would work out. <laughs> Good uh, luck. But Good yeah, luck. A, lot, a lot of rugby fans <laughs> been pretty keen to hear what's actually happening on the ground. But the rest of the world, possibly not as enthusiastic about um, this final coming up as people in New Zealand. Yeah, I suspect so. What, what are your thoughts behind this? Yeah, it's not the All Blacks' fault, hey, but after no. those epic quarterfinals, you know, which knocked out Ireland and France the weekend before that, those huge South Africa and France, uh, the best supported sides are now out. England fans, uh, you know, they're all going home as well. Um, a lot of pundits noted that when New Zealand played Argentina last weekend. The Stade de France, which you know, a hive of activity mm-hmm. with um, those other well-supported sides, not so much for for uh, for our team in Argentina. In fact, um, there were some South African fans teasing All Black fans outside the Stade de France, and the Sky Sport cameras uh, just happened to catch it. That was after last weekend's um, semi-final mm-hmm. ended up being a bit uh, one-way traffic. Here's what that sounded like. Uh, South Africa will be in the final. South Africa will be in the final. Yeah. And then it'll be nice seeing you goodbye. <laughs> See you next Saturday. Yeah, it was clear in the pictures, but those South African supporters were kind of goading the All Black fans and saying, "Where's the atmosphere? What's wrong with you guys? You know, no, no colour." And yeah, it's not quite. I guess the, I think the Irish got the award for top fans, but you know, when the host nation goes out, that's never good either. But that, um, by the way, that I'm, I, I couldn't tell from the pictures, but that voice yeah. sounded very much like Kerry Woodham of Newstalk ZB, <laughs> and, and she was all rugged up with a hat on. And so I, I think it was her uh, oh, giving really? it back to those South African fans. Yeah. But yeah. 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 Now, hard to get a big noise going, though, from a few thousand people who've made the trip across the planet and bought tickets uh, when they're kind of outnumbered, really. Yeah, it is harsh. But um, it did remind me, I had a friend who was telling me about working on the documentary uh, for the World Cup in 1999. At the time, British British tell, I was working in the UK at the time, lots of these fly-on-the-wall docos, they loved, you know, colourful you know, they would have a camera trailing him, but they love getting close to fans. This was a bit of a, a genre, and he was uh, engaged to try and make one of these, but it was a bunch of people on an official tour for the Rugby mm. World Cup, all black fans touring with Buck Shelford leading the party, and he said, look, there just wasn't a whole lot of that colour. Yeah. And I looked it up, I thought, I wonder if, if this is anyway, and I found it on New Zealand On Screen, it's called On Tour with the All Black Army, yeah. and uh, here's a little bit of it. This is before that fateful semi-final at Twickenham against France. It's a whole bunch of the team, uh, the fans boarding the bus for that game and a little bit overconfident. I'm going to be uh, honest and uh, say 50 to 10 is my score to the All Blacks. Win by 30 points today. Of course we're confident, all of us. Can't you see it? We're all hyped. We're all going there. Bashing frogs. I think we'll thrash them by 30. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was Murray Deeker at the end there. confidently <laughs> they were going to thrash them by 30. Oh, yeah. We all know what happened. <laughs> yeah, and it all went down a bit. So so this documentary, when it runs out of, um, you know, its, its climax, is there's no final to go to. The whole thing goes downhill a bit, and they've got to keep entertaining uh, these fans who paid top dollar to tour around with... Um, Buck Shelford, mm. it's all a bit sad. So here's a, a bit where they've, all they've got to look forward to, I think, now is the third place, uh, the third place match. It's the tour group's last night together. Buck's called a court session to replay some of the highlights. So we'd like to bring it to the court. The, the only one that we've got in Marjorie is impersonating River Dance. <laughs> Jack's been saving his party tricks till last. He faces charges for a roadside indiscretion. <laughs> I don't know quite what he did. They didn't elaborate on what the uh, the roadside indiscretion was, but that might have made good television. I don't know, but the rest of the doco yes. really didn't. Now we've got a minute to go, so probably can't go too much further on this, but the semi-final last week was one-sided with the All Blacks in Argentina, but then the England and South Africa game was very, very tense. But it wasn't exactly the game for the ages in yeah. terms of... You know, yeah, it's, it's getting a real hammering. People are saying, oh, the ball was in play for only about 31 minutes. You had a text earlier in the night from someone who may or may not have been called uh, Snoopy. Yes. I think saying 80 minutes of standing around or whatever it is. But uh, right. my favourite sort of slightly overall comment about this, Jonathan Liu in The Guardian said, this was sport as a kind of dark matter, an anti-spectacle, a curious ontological experiment into whether a game of rugby can exist if no actual rugby <laughs> is being played. It's been stripped back, stripped back some more until it physically disappears uh, this may have been the first World Cup game with a negative ball in playtime. Well, not quite, but yeah, didn't go down too well. And then former Wallaby Matt Williams said this was like watching tax accountants exp- uh, exploit loopholes. <laughs> <laughs>